Amen. Good morning, church family. If you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a long time, we're in the Gospel of Luke. And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 22 to catch us up. Um, oh, by the way, do we have a... Danny made the announcements about the video tonight, right? Five o'clock. Everybody heard that? Showing the movie from the Vo- uh, Voice of the Martyrs made. Probably not for small children, based on one of the previews, but, uh, you know, sorry about that. Uh, that part's actually not in the movie, but anyhow. So, uh, we have been with Jesus. We have seen him the last week here, and he has been going to the temple, withdrawing to the Mount of Olives to pray. He has uh, been doing that every day. We have seen him give instruction previously to the disciples to go out. They didn't have to take a cloak or a dagger or a money bag. They didn't even have to take a change of clothes. That the Lord was going to provide that. Jesus, thank you. Jesus is going to provide that for him. And here in the last section, he tells them, you need to prepare. I'm getting ready to go into this ultimate you know, battle with sin. And while I'm dealing with this, I can't provide for you. So for this short time, you, got, you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. And so trying to prepare them for this short time here where he's not going to be with them while he's on the cross. And so we pick up here uh, on the tail end. Jesus has told them to pray, and now he is uh, coming out of that time of prayer. They fall asleep while he instructed them to pray. We saw last week one of the most important things is that we are not asleep while the greatest battles rage. And here we are now at the last part of chapter 22. Uh, and this is the this is the arrest of Jesus and the very last miracle that he does. So let's look at this together. Luke twenty two forty seven through fifty three. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man came. Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servants of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with a sword and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour, the hour, the the power of darkness, reading of his holy and errant infallible word. I pray he writes this truth on all of our hearts because the grass withers, the flowers fade, say it with me if you know it, but the word of our God endures forever. All right. So picking up here while he's speaking here in the garden Talking to the disciples, wake up, the moment is here. There came a crowd. This is what we're going to learn today from this text is how Jesus deals with betrayal. Uh, No one goes through this life without some point facing betrayal of some kind. Uh, Perhaps one group that feels this in particular is uh, pastors. I will tell you this, an an older friend of mine Uh, in the ministry as I was first getting started, you would often hear things like this said to you. And if you're not a pastor, you may not be as familiar with these things, but I remember one pastor telling me, you know, you just can't have friends. The people that you pastor can't be your friends. I had an older pastor tell me that one time. Don't ever be friends with the people you pastor. 
I personally think that's a terrible approach to church, but, you know, whatever. Uh, I guess he'd been burned one too many times, and he just decided to withdraw into himself. Another time an older minister told me, he said, Now listen, when you get to the church, the people who help you unpack the books from your boxes and put them on the shelves are going to be the first people to turn on you. It's a guarantee. And uh, sadly, some of that's come true. Uh, in my years of ministry as I've moved from different places and pastored in different places. But uh, so we all feel it. We've all felt that. These are the attacks of Satan. Here's the reality of the situation. We're coming from a season of prayer here. Jesus is withdrawn from the crowds and he started praying here. He's got the disciples praying. Satan loves to attack during times of prayer. Uh, Charles Stanley once said, if you've never fallen asleep while you're trying to pray, you've never tried to pray, right? Uh, You're tempted with sleep, and there's a battlefield when you're trying to be disciplined in your prayer life, mainly in the mind. I don't know about you, but some of the most despicable, horrendous thoughts that I have are while I'm trying to focus on prayer and prayer for others and prayer for our church and prayer for the gospel and the kingdom here in our community. It is a battleground of thought and mind there, and that's where he attacks. So one place Satan attacks is spiritual, right? He attacks the disciples, gets them to sleep. He, he, uh, he is attacking here as Jesus is trying to withdraw and pray, trying to distract from anything but his prayer. Uh, another thing that we see here says, uh, when he's done speaking, his, there came a what? What's it say, church? A couple of guys with uh, torches, a two people to come and apprehend Jesus, a what? A crowd, large group of people. Uh, so Satan will attack you spiritually. He will attack you spatially. Uh, Satan likes to, to make God's people think that they are in the minority. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you for just a minute and say, uh, based on what I have seen politically and at the entertainment level, I think Bible-believing Christians are the minority in this country. I really honestly believe that, that we are not the majority of this nation. I'm not real sure we ever have been true Bible believers, but at a minimum now, I think I would say we're definitely not. And we will hear things from the crowd around us, things like, you're on the wrong side of history on this one particular issue. Friends, when that happens, remember, it wasn't a couple of people that came for Jesus. It was, the Bible tells us in other parts of the text, they took a section of a Roman army with them, like a group of 600 that are trained. And they, they did, I don't think all 600 went, but a group of soldiers were trained and went with him. Uh, you know, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the elders would have known who Jesus was, but they didn't necessarily know. This is why I think the kiss is in there, right? Which means us to the third thing here, relationally. This is not just anyone who betrays Jesus. It's understandable. You expect Pharisees to betray Jesus because of the nature of a Pharisee. You expect the, uh, the elders to betray Jesus and never really were on board with him. It wasn't truly a betrayal. They were always just enemies. The only betrayal they have is to the truth and to who God is. That's the betrayal they have, but they don't see it that way. But this one hurts in particular because this one is of a friend. Take with me for just a second your Bibles and turn to Psalm 55 for just a minute. I want you to see this verse that David writes on relational betrayal. Uh, And I think this Psalm 55 applies directly to Judas. And verse 12 says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, right? Not a Pharisee, not a Sadducee, not an elder of the temple. It's 
It is, then he says, then I could bear it. We can kind of deal with that, right? It is not an adversary who deals uh, insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throne. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive for evil in their dwelling place and in their heart. So Judas, the Bible tells us, Satan has entered into him. And he is betraying Jesus here with a kiss. It's a typical Middle Eastern at the time greeting, particularly from a student to a rabbi or teacher. And so in doing so, betraying him here with a kiss, betrayal that is relational in particular stings and hurts. The question is, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Right? I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. And then finally, uh, physical. They're going to apprehend Jesus. Uh, there's, there's not really... They're going to come to deal with a spiritual matter with physical weapons. And Jesus is going to rebuke the disciples for that. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. But they're going to try to take, apprehend him, lay hands on him physically. And finally, Satan is going to attack religiously. Who are the people here in this crowd that are pursuing Jesus? These are the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of the day. The people who are hiding their wickedness behind niceties, behind religiosity, and behind good deeds. Okay? So Satan is going to attack through spiritually. He's going to attack spatially. He's going to attack relationally. He's going to attack physically. And he's going to attack religiously. That's a lot of fronts for Satan to attack. But that's all happening in these verses. All right? Now, let's, let's kind of talk about the correct reaction here that Jesus has as opposed to our reactions. Because there's a big difference between how Jesus reacts and how we react. We react okay? uh, first point I want to make is this. Jesus responds personally. Look at verse 48. But Jesus said to Judas, Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? C.J. Riley has been very helpful for me as I've studied the Gospel of Luke. And here's what he says about this verse. To betray Christ at any time is the very height of wickedness, but to betray Him with a kiss proves a man to have become a very child of hell. Strong words and strong truth. Now, I want you to think about something here, this question. Jesus knows the little plan. Jesus knows about all their little scheming. Jesus knows about the deals behind the door, the back door deals. He's aware of it all. He is the Word of God, God Himself in His glory. John 1 tells us the Word became what? Flesh. This is God in human flesh. The glory of the throne wrapped in skin and bones. All right? Think about this for just a minute. Okay? When Judas comes up and seals the deal and kisses him on the cheek, Jesus could have done what? What was he capable of doing in that moment? Have you ever thought about this? The capability of Jesus when the betrayal happens? Jesus could have called down a hundred galaxies of wrath on Jesus' head right in that moment. 
He could have called down a hundred galaxies of wrath on Judas's head in that moment. He could have called a cohort of thousands upon thousands of angels to immediately draw and quarter him and spread his remains to the four corners of the earth. This is who he's messing with. Could have done it like that. I probably would have done that if that would have been me. But it's a good thing I'm not Jesus, right? I'm trying to get there, right? But it wasn't... What would probably have been what I'd have done. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus has the power to do that. In the flip of a finger, really, he could just strip him down at the molecular level with the snap of his fingers. Thanos don't have anything on the God we serve. He could have done any of those things. But what's he do? What's his reaction to Judas? He asks him a question, Judas. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I don't know if you think about this question much or if you put this in perspective, but he knows this is not as much a physical battle. A couple of things Jesus sees here that we need to draw attention to. First of all, he understands that really Judas is a victim of the true enemy, which is Satan. Now, let me be very clear. This does not get Judas off the hook, all right? Do I believe God is sovereign? Yes, I do. In particular, with the death and resurrection of His Son for the payment of sins of mankind, God is orchestrating all of that and working through that. But let's not forget who our real enemy is whenever we're betrayed. Our real enemy is not necessarily the flesh and blood that stands in front of us. It's against the principalities of what? Of darkness, right? What's behind all that? So Judas is certainly without a doubt, responsible for what he does. We're real people making real decisions that have real ramifications for eternity. Don't ever hear me and think that I'm saying that we're some kind of like agents that can't control ourselves. I don't think the Bible teaches that. So Judas is 100% responsible. And just like in your life, right, when you have people turn on you and betray you, they certainly are responsible for the actions that they've committed. But let's not forget the heavy influence that our true enemy has on so many people's lives. You know, when this happens to us, I think I personally, and probably many of you, are more like Peter's response, right? Now, it says here in the text that uh, when those who were around him saw, they, they said, Lord, shall we, shall we strike with a sword? And then verse 50, and one struck a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, when you read that, it feels very chronological, but based on the word construction, 40, 49 and 50 are kind of like one action, right? So it's like, shall we get our swords, right? Like striking the ear as you're taking off the ear. Lord, should we take his ear off? Like it's all kind of one thing. Like you've already sort of made your mind up. This is what you're going to do. And you're kind of asking the Lord's permission as you're in the middle of doing it. Uh, a few things we need to learn about this, right? So he sees this betrayal. Of course, he himself will follow him. Uh, Luke doesn't say who it is. We learn from the Gospel of John. It's actually Peter that does this. That takes his sword, draws it, and lops off the ear. We learn the, the name of the, the servant here. The word's doulos. He's a slave of the high priest. So this is somebody that gets their ear whacked off. That quite frankly, if they were not a slave of the high priest, would not even be in this current situation. All right? So like they were forced to be taken out there. And here he is, wrong place, wrong time, loses his right ear to Peter. Okay? I almost titled the sermon... Uh, what Peter said here in this verse, uh, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And then the question is posted to us today as Christian. It's posed to us in this text. Tell me, church, shall we 
strike the enemies of God with a sword? Here's the mistake we make. We oftentimes want to address a spiritual attack with physical means. Can I remind you of what James told us in James 1.20? Do you have your Bibles? Look at this verse with me for just a minute. James 1.20 says this, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What's this verse mean? It means don't fight a spiritual battle with physical means. What's Jesus say quickly? He rebukes them, doesn't he? Don't, don't fight spiritual battles with physical means. You say, Pastor Travis, I don't do that. I don't pull out my dagger and stop lop, start lopping off ears of Democrats or Republicans or whoever you think the enemy is, right? Bernie Sanders ever gets close enough to me, taking that right ear right off, right? This is not the correct way to approach it, right? Listen, no, we don't take a dagger out as 21st century Christians, but what do we do? we got some physical t- ways that we attack, just like with a dagger. Well, how about this? We, we get a dig in. You ever done that? Get a dig in on somebody? Christian cult, cancel culture? Self-righteous rebukes? A stimulating post online or Facebook? Or terrible tweets? You take your pick. All daggers, lopping off ears and eyes, however we see fit. Shocking thing, usually goats act like sheep, right? No, goats tend to act like goats, and let's not be surprised when they do. No, we we need to put the daggers away. Put the daggers away. And we need to have a heart like Christ has in this text. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing, but it's a right thing because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Seems like a spiritual thing because we're, we're standing for righteousness. We're doing it before we even get an answer from the Lord. It's a quick response. We oftentimes think immediate response is right response because it's immediate. But C.J. J.C. Riley helps us again think through these verses, and here's what he writes. We should learn from these verses... That it is much easier to fight a little for Christ than to endure hardship and to go to prison and death for his sake. The lesson before us is deeply instructed. To suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively. To sit down and endure calmly is far more hard than to stir about and take part in the battle. Listen to what he says here. This is fascinating to me. Crusaders will always be more numerous than martyrs. Isn't that interesting? Crusaders will always be more numerous than martyrs. Work for Christ may be done from more spryest motives, from excitement, from emulations, from party spirit, from love of praise. But suffering from Christ will seldom be endured from any but one motive. And the motive is the grace of God. We shall do well to remember these things, informing our estimate of the compassive or the comparative grace of professing Christians. Some poor, 
unknown believer who has been lying in bed for years on his back, enduring pain without a murmur, may prove to at last to have brought more glory to Christ through his patience than to have done more good through his prayers than the public action of others. The grand test of grace is patient suffering. Remembering God's words to Saul in Acts 9.16, I will show Saul what great things we must suffer for my name. Peter, we, we stand like him there. Uh, he did far less good than he drew his sword and cut off this man's ear. When, and when he stood calmly before the council as a prisoner and said, I cannot but speak the things I have seen and heard. So here, Peter gets it all wrong he thinks attacking with spiritually, but it is when he's in chains in Acts chapter 9 where he is able to do the most good for the kingdom. Not with his sword, not with his unthinking quick action, but as he stands a humble prisoner making a plea to the things of God. We should never respond physically to a spiritual problem. The world will do that, but we must not. Second of all here, uh, third of all, I mean, I think, yes, third of all, uh, Jesus is gracious in verse, uh, verse 48 here. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? This is a, this is a plea of mercy. Do you see that? Like this is a, he could have called all that wrath down on Judas and he pleads with him here. Judas, you got this all wrong. You think I'm on trial? You are on trial right now. You, Judas, are on trial. And what you do right now will determine your eternity. Don't make the wrong choice here. Don't do it, right? The day when Judas will stand before God, the Father, and the great white throne judgment, and he may say, I just didn't understand. The Lord can say wholeheartedly, but I gave you a last plea, a last plea before you did what you were influenced to do by Satan, and you chose to do that anyway. It is truthful, verses 52 and 53, Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple who had come out against him. Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And Jesus is merciful, he's gracious, but he never lacks truth when he makes statements. He said, look, I've been with you every day. You could have had me and arrested me at any point. I wouldn't have fought you for it. And you've come here in the cover of night. Should be here at the homes with the Passover with your family. And here you are coming at me at night when I'm withdrawn to a, to a desolate place here. The, the Garden of Olives. To, to, so nobody can see you there out of fear of the crowd, right? He's truthful with them. What are the lessons we're walking away with today? Here they are quickly. First of all, Pray. Pray, 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 pray. As a church, we must pray individually. We must pray collectively. Every Wednesday we gather to pray. Make that a priority. Be part of that if you're not serving or doing something else that, during that time. Be part of the prayer time when we pray here as a church. Because here's what happens to churches. When the church stops praying, it's usually because they stop believing. 
When they stop believing and they stop praying, here's what happens. Wrong solutions present themselves in the absence of prayer. Peter here sort of prays and does at the same time, but he does it incorrectly. He just jumps into action and sort of asks God for help afterwards. How many times have we been guilty of that? Not praying on the front end and jumping into action and slicing an ear off. Speaking of which, let me, let me put a thought in your mind here for a minute that I've thought about all week. What if Marcus, that's the guy whose ear got cut off, John tells us that. The reason John records it is he records his gospel later than these gospels. I think this helped Peter out in his ministry. Peter was probably dead by the time uh, you know, John was written, but anyhow. What if Marcus was never healed? What if when, Jesus, when Peter drew his sword and cut off Marcus's ear, his right ear, he just had to let it scar over, a nasty scar over, just had to walk through the rest of his life marred by Peter? You can almost hear the conversation when this servant would go out to the marketplace to get goods for the household of the master he served. The children there saying to him, Marcus, what happened to your ear? It's all weird and gross looking. Because from the mouth of babes, truth always comes, right? Mark is saying, well, I have served the priests a lot of years. And I had to go when they arrested the Jesus of Nazareth. His followers were there. And one of his followers took his sword and marred me for the rest of my life. He took it out and he cut my ear off and he scarred me for the rest of my days. Those Christians, you can't trust them. You can't be close to them. They're dangerous. I don't want anything to do with them. What if that was Marcus's testimony for the rest of his life? Jesus was not going to let that happen, was he? He healed him so that he could proclaim the truth of who he was. So pray before doing, right? Second of all, trust God is never more in control than Satan is active. Yes, Satan is active. Peter has warned us that he is a lion roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. But God is greater still. He's a lion on a leash. Trust in God. Rest. Rest here. The power of darkness can have a temporary and deadly uh, victory here and there. And it has proven to do that throughout church history and particularly here at this point of the cross. But here is the reality of the, of the darkest hours that we have and the victories that darkness has. The victories that darkness have, although they are temporary and are deadly, they don't last. The victories of darkness don't last forever. And then finally, believe. Pray, trust, rest, believe. Believe that Jesus, this is the beautiful thing about this passage, one of the things I love the most about this passage here, that when Satan here is at his absolute worst, controlling one of the very 12 that were handpicked by Jesus, when he has rallied the Roman government to come after Jesus, and he is at his absolute worst in biblical history, Jesus Christ is at his best. He's at his best. And this is the call of the believer, isn't it? This is hard, right? When our enemies are at their worst, we must trust Christ and we must strive to do the example that he done and try to be at our best. And that's hard, but that's what's being modeled here. I wish I could stand up here and tell you I've knocked this one out of the park multiple times, but you can talk to my wife and she'll tell you he hasn't. He hasn't. There's been times he's thrown little preschool temper tantrums in bed crying to me about it, right? He's just been at his worst when his enemies have been at their worst. 
But this is the example. Your bar is not me. What did Paul say? In as far as I emulate Christ, emulate me. There's been other times I have handled it more like Christ. I'm not going to say perfectly like Christ, but more like Christ. Pray, trust, rest, believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Lord, we, we see a picture here of betrayal, but more than this, we see a picture of your sovereignty. We see a picture of, of an example of how we handle betrayal. We see a call and a need to handle things in your example and not in our own. Lord, let us not rush into immediate battle without spending time in prayer. Let us not draw our swords and maim our enemies and your enemies, Lord, whether they are overlapping or not. But instead, let us have an approach here that when Satan is at his worst, you will help us to be at our best. Not because we're worthy or better or more capable, but because you are worthy, Lord. Because you are capable. Your indwelling spirit and power in your people can allow us to reflect Christ in our darkest of hours. Let us just lean into the truth today that these dark, dark moments and these deadly victories that the darkness has they soon pass away nothing is forever in this world lord help us to be reminded of that his kingdom the prince of the power of the air his dominion is coming to an end lord we anxiously await your return in christ's name we pray amen if you're here today you've never trusted christ you've heard the gospel preached You've heard who he is. You know where this is going, the cross, as payment for your sins. Won't you trust him now? Or if you're here today and you want to be part of a church family, you've not done that. We're to love the things that the Lord loves. Remember when Peter came back to the Lord after his betrayal? What should I do? Jesus said, feed my sheep. Love the things that I love. Won't you love his church the way he does? Be part of this family. Or if you want to be part of this family, see me, we'll start that process as we sing in response. Please stand.